So what usually happens with mergers and acquisitions, where they go wrong, is that business leaders look at the products, at the strategy, and they don't look at the people. Welcome to Change Your Mindset Podcast, formerly known as Improv is No Joke, where it's all about believing that strong communication skills are the best way in delivering your technical accounting knowledge and growing your business. An effective way of building stronger communication skills is by embracing the principles of applied improvisation. Your host is Peter Margarita, CPA, a.k.a. The Accidental Accountant, and he will interview financial professionals and business leaders to find their secret in building stronger relationships with their clients, customers, associates, and peers, all the while growing their businesses. So let's start the show. Welcome to episode 32. And my guest today is the disaster avoidance expert, Dr. Gleb Zapersky. Gleb has over 20 years of experience dramatically empowering leaders and organizations to avoid business disasters by addressing potential threats, maximizing unexpected opportunities, and resolving persistent personnel problems. Gleb serves as the CEO of a boutique consulting and training firm, Disaster Avoidance Experts, whose clients range from Fortune 500 companies to mid-sized businesses and nonprofits. He's authored the national bestseller on avoiding disasters in business and other life areas, The Truth Seekers Handbook, a science-based guide, and is never going through gut how pioneering leaders make the best decisions and avoid business disasters, is forthcoming with Career Press in November. 2019. Gleb's cutting-edge thought leadership was featured over 400 articles. He's published over 350 interviews he has gave to popular venues that include Fast Company, CBS News, Times Scientific American, Psychology Today, The Conversation, Business Insider, Government Executive, Inc. Magazine, and many others. He also has a strong research and teaching background in behavioral economics and neuroscience with over 15 years in academia, including seven years as a professor at The Ohio State University with dozens of peer-reviewed and academic publications. Our discussion today is about his new book, Never Go With Your Gut. And you can learn more about Gleb by going to his website, disasteravoidanceexperts.com. And you can contact him through his email at gleb, G-L-E-B, at DisasterAvoidanceExperts.com. Now, before we get to the interview, Change Your Mindset is part of the C-Suite Radio family of podcasts. It is an honor and a privilege to be amongst some of the more popular business podcasts, such as The Hero Factor with Jeffrey Hazlett, Amazing Business Radio with Shep Hyken, and Keep Leading with Eddie Turner. You can find Change Your Mindset and many other outstanding business podcasts on C-Suite Radio by going to www c-sweetradio.com. This podcast is part of the C-Suite Radio Network, turning the volume up on business. And now a word from our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by Peter A. Margaritas, LLC, a.k.a. The Accidental Accountant. Are you looking for a high-content and engaging speaker for your next conference? Do you want to deliver a story to stakeholders that will transform data dumping to engaging business conversations? Do you want to feel that the value a speaker provides your audience far exceeds the dollar value on their invoice? 
Then book Peter for your next conference, management retreat, or workshop. Contact Peter at peter at petermargaritas.com and visit his website at www.petermargaritas.com. By the way, one of his Fortune 50 clients actually made the comment about the value he brings to your audience. Now let's get to the interview with Dr. Kleb Sapersky. Welcome back, everybody. Today, my guest is uh, Gleb Sapersky, who I've known now for probably about a little bit over a year or so because he's a member of the National Speakers Association. More importantly, he's a member of the Ohio chapter of the National Speakers Association. And first and foremost, I want to welcome Gleb. Thank you so very much for being a guest on my podcast today. Um, I appreciate you taking time out on this absolutely stunning, beautiful afternoon here in Columbus, Ohio, something that we haven't seen in quite a while. Yeah, that's so much. It's a beautiful afternoon. It's been a week of rain, so it's nice to have this difference. And thank you for having me on the podcast. I appreciate it, Peter. Uh, I'm looking forward to this conversation. But before we get into the, the crux of it, can you give my audience a little bit of your background? Sure, happy to. So as you can hear from my accent, I wasn't born here in the United States. I was born in Moldova, which is a country in Eastern Europe that's just to the east of Romania and south uh, west of ukraine for those geography buffs who are listening in <laughs> <laughs> and i came here when i was 10 my parents took me in 1991 just as the soviet union was about to collapse you know the, the situation was that it became much more free to leave the the wall was falling down and so my parents left that part of, left that part of the world to go somewhere where they have more freedom, independence, and opportunity for themselves and their kids. And we settled down in New York City. And so that's where I grew up since I was 10 until, I think I lived there until my early, like 19, like 21. I went to New York University. Then I was in Massachusetts. I got a master's in Harvard. And then I got a PhD at UNC Chapel Hill. And so that's kind of my educational background before I settled here in Columbus where I got a job at Ohio State University, and I stayed there for about seven years until leaving a year ago to do full-time speaking, consulting, and coaching. So that's kind of my travel background. Now, my professional background is that I was always fascinated in decision-making. Why do people make such bad decisions? <laughs> you know, people make so many bad decisions. I, when I was a kid, my I first saw this uh, in, in my parents, to be honest. They yelled at each other. They fought a lot. And was over stupid things, just kind of my really random things. And I saw that and I was like, why? Why are you doing this? You know, this is not good for either of you. You live with each other. <laughs> so that, that wasn't great. And then I came of age. So I kind of became an adult and I started looking at my society during the dot-com boom and bust. And so when people are pouring enormous, enormous sums of money, many billions of dollars into online venues that really seemed sketchy to me, and then they all disappeared in the blink of an eye, most of them. I think Webvan, Petcom, I mean, so many of them disappeared. And then even worse, you have people from Enron, WorldCom, and Tyco who suffered as part of the dot-com boom and bust, but they used fraudulent methods to try to cover up their suffering, the fact that they lost a lot of money. And then they had the accounting fraud scandals, and they screwed a lot of investors out of a lot of money. And that was just, people suffered so much, both because of the dot-com boom and bust, 
and because of the fraudulent scandals. So that really, that turning point in my life, that period of time when I was becoming an adult, pushed me to study decision-making in business context. And then doing consulting, coaching, and training for business leaders on how to avoid the kind of disastrous decisions that lead to such harmful, harmful consequences. So that's a little bit of, bit of my professional journey outside of the academic realm. In the academia, I studied the decision-making, and then I brought it out to the consulting, coaching, speaking clients that I train and help. Yeah, bad decisions. Uh, and you mentioned the the big three in the accounting profession around fraud. And, I, and, I, and we'll... we'll to start talking more about your book, Never Go With Your Gut. Your, excuse me, your new book, Never Go With Your Gut, that's coming out in November. But my my, my thought about the accounting fraud scandals are it's just pure greed. And I, we may have, we may have, as you, you purposely said and very eloquently said, screwed up. But because of that greed and, and that guilt and want to keep things going, we, we, we perpetrated this ruse to try to cover it up. But as we've learned, and we'll start with Nixon, but we learn cover-ups don't work. It yeah. eventually will come out. I hear you, Peter. And as an accountant, I totally understand why you go to the greed question right away. <laughs> but when you actually, I look at the scandals in depth. And what happens is the people at the top, they did not need more money. They had many, 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 many millions of dollars in their bank accounts. So the question is, given that they had many, many, many billions, you know, um, millions, a few more million dollars wouldn't make a difference really to their bank accounts. And it could make a huge difference to their legacy and the fact that the, some of them went to jail for 10 years. So why did they do it? Why did they commit this fraud? And if you actually look in depth at why they committed this fraud, they committed it because they went with their gut reactions, their intuitions. And they did it because of their emotions, their feelings. They were afraid, Peter. They were afraid of being seen as losers, as losing face in front of other people who were their peers, in front of their families. They didn't want to lose face. And so they tried to cover it up as much as they could because they felt very uncomfortable and they felt very bad about being perceived as losers, about losing face. And that's the essence of what was happening there. It was driven by their emotions, by their intuitions, by their feelings, which research shows determine about 80 to 90% of what we do. So, Club, help me here. Uh, when, I, when I try to put rational thought around this, if they if they didn't want to be perceived as losers, mm-hmm. but we make these bad decisions based on emotions to basically cover ourselves or insulate ourselves, but when we're ultimately caught, yes, we're even bigger losers mm-hmm. versus doing the right thing at the right moment. And, and we can go back in history, for even from an accounting profession, we go back in history and and see it. It, it, it continues to go. So I think part of that, your conversation here, but what about the ego? Uh, does the ego just hijack everything? Yeah, uh, the ego, this is the ego. You don't want to be perceived as a loser. Now here, uh, so we need to think about the gut here, our intuitions, our emotions. They're very short-term oriented. You know, if they weren't short-term oriented, all the students and all the classes would turn their papers in on time, right? And uh, there, would, <laughs> there wouldn't be a rush, uh, you know, as you, you work a lot with accountants, you know what kind of a rush there is before tax day, before April 15, right? right. People do their uh, things in on time. Uh, people procrastinate because of, their gut intu- because of their gut reactions, their intuitions, our emotions are, are very short-term oriented because... 
They evolved for the ancestral savannah. That's what we evolved from. That's what our gut functions as. It functions with tribalism. It functions with fight or flight response. So it's very short-term oriented. And it really helped us survive in the savannah to be short-term oriented because, you know, we didn't really have an opportunity to invest into the long-term. We couldn't build a bank account. We couldn't build a house. We needed to get away from those saber-toothed tigers as quickly as possible and to hunt down the deer and bison and whatnot. So that's where our lives are like in the savannah. And in the savannah, that short-term orientation was great. You, know, you didn't need to worry about cover-ups. You didn't need to worry about journalists and reporters and bank accounts and stuff like that. And so these gut reactions really misfire very often in the modern world and bring down high-flying careers and big companies. Wow. Okay. So I, I, I get that. Uh, and as we're sitting here talking, I get the aspect about why emotions drive decisions and that short-term nature of it. But in looking at your looking at your book, so you cover all of this preface around around emotions in that in the second chapter, like who wants to be a loser? Yes. So that's a question about losing. One of the aspects that really drives us is not wanting to lose. And apparently, so we did some research on this and not wanting to lose. Apparently, people are, if they have an option between losing and gaining, they're twice as averse. They're twice as reluctant to gain money as to lose money. So uh, if, you give, if you give somebody an example, if you, say, if you tell somebody, hey, how about I give you $50 right now or uh, $60 in a year? Now, what would you do, Peter? You'd probably take the $50 now. Why, why is that, Peter? Uh, uh, short-term gratification. I, I have 50 in hand. Yeah, 50. Well, let's say there's a complete guarantee. They place it in a trust for you, you know, for in a year from now, $60. So I would go, there's no such thing as a guarantee. I look at that as a, pe- a pension, and I'd rather have the 50 now to spend versus waiting a year. And I'll do the accountant time value of money and stuff. I'll take the 50 now. And you can, I'll give you my mailing address where you can send it to me, Cloud. Ah, sure. Okay. <laughs> well, only if you send me $60 in a year, Peter. <laughs> let, 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 let's let's do that. You send me 50 now and you'll see if you get your 60 in a year. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, so people, unfortunately, they don't tend to think about the fact that essentially savings accounts and checking accounts, bonds are, uh, they increase at the rate of, you know, 1%, 2%. And we hold all our money in a bank. So if I tell you, you know, put it in a trust fund, put it in an account, you can trust that money will be there. But we intuitively tend to go for the short-term gains because we're afraid of losing the money that's in the hand versus the longer-term gains. Now, think about $60 compared to $50. That's a 20% increase. Imagine if you can make an investment that can guarantee you a 20% increase in a year. That wouldn't be a Ponzi scheme. It wouldn't be Bernie Madoff. You know, <laughs> People would be all over it. This is a 20% increase of your money in a year. Whereas the average increase, even in the stock market, is something like 5 to 7% with high probability of losses. So that's a great, great, great investment. I would, if somebody offered me that deal, I would totally take it. $60 in a year. Absolutely. Why is that? Because I know that my mind is screwed up, as is everybody's, <laughs> to be term oriented, to want to avoid losses. And this desire to avoid losses really harms us because. Smart financial companies and schemers really scheme people out of a lot of money who 
are not oriented toward the long term, who take the short term gains over the much higher, much better long term deal. And so if you don't want to be a loser, you want to think about the long term. You want to think about, okay, I don't want to lose this money now, but how much more would I gain in the long term? And so that's a kind of balance we need to draw to avoid falling for the cognitive bias that's called loss aversion. And people fall for it all the time. That's why people stay so long in dead-end jobs. I mean, I coach a number of business leaders who were really afraid, executives who were really afraid of jumping ship when they really should have. I mean, they were much... They were overqualified for their current jobs, but they were worried about switching jobs to a new company or trying to get a better job in their current company, partially because of this loss aversion. They didn't want to let go of what they had, and they made bad decisions. They didn't want to let go of what they had, and so they lost out a number of times. So that's one of the conversations that I frequently have with business leaders. That's, that's interesting. I, I, uh, I can relate to some of that. And actually, some of the, 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 the example that you gave, uh, I just read... And something very similar. Who did the exact same same example? I'm trying to remember the book I just read that in. I get it. Yeah, we tend to have taken a a, a short term view in the uh, overall in this country. We have quarterly, you know, analyst calls and quarterly reporting and so on and so forth. And we really should be thinking about the long term and, and, and investing. In your book, you, you have this uh, chapter titled "Who's the Bad Guy," mm-hmm. and so I'm sitting there thinking, I make if I'm making the bad decisions, does that make me the bad guy? No, no, no. This chapter is about how we interpret others and how we interpret ourselves. Now, let's say you're driving on the road and you see somebody cutting cut you off like really badly, and you're like, "Oh, that jerk! How can you cut me off? Right? That's terrible." And then you're driving along, and then you switch lanes, and you just happen to not see somebody, and you cut them off, and you're like, "Oh, I'm sorry, I just didn't see that person. Right? I'm not a jerk." You don't attribute jerkness to yourself. You tend to attribute jerkness to others. And that's kind of the difference in what's called the fundamental attribution error. Now, it happens all the time in business settings. When you go to a meeting and you see somebody who is behaving in a somewhat in a problematic way, let's say they're being shifty or they're you know being uncertain or ambiguous, you tend to not trust them because you think, oh, they're being shifty, they're not trustworthy, right? But you know, when you're having a stressful day, you know, you're uh, you just had a plumbing accident at home and then you need to change your clothing and run out to a business meeting. No, you're not going to be so great. You're going to be like worried about what's happened in your house and what's going on and you know your wife or husband are taking care of it or not. So you're not going to be really focused and you're going to appear to be shifty. But of course, you're not going to be not trustworthy in that situation. And that's kind of a really frequent thing that happens where People interpret others, the behavior of others, in the most negative way possible. It's just the human nature to do so. That's how we think. That's how we roll. That's how our brains work. That's why we think of that somebody who cuts us off is a jerk, as opposed to thinking, oh, maybe that person didn't see us, or maybe that person is driving his pregnant wife to the hospital. So we don't attribute more positive, charitable motivations to others. And because of that, we tend to make a lot of mistakes. A lot of business deals don't get closed because of these negative attributions. A lot of people who could be hired to a good position aren't hired. And so this is called the category of attribution errors, where we attribute negative status to other people 
and also to groups of other people. And we can talk about that. That has that gets into stereotyping. But I'll talk. I'll stop now so I don't monologue. <laughs> <laughs> so okay. So your analogy about the car. Two weeks ago, I was driving from Atlantic City back down to Baltimore, and I swerved. I didn't see the the blind spot, and I almost hit a car. I came back. I'm very sorry. Whatever. No, no kidding. Ten minutes later, somebody almost ran into me, and I didn't call him a jerk, but I gave him another word. It wasn't very. <laughs> it wasn't very nice. And yeah. as you, and I went. And I didn't think twice about that. Yeah. Uh, but then I'm thinking now. Listen to you, like, oh, yeah, I I get it. Uh, <laughs> I and I don't know why. We, it, um, uh, there's a joke that George Carlin used to say: when somebody flies by you, you know, there's there's speeding past you. Look at that idiot. <laughs> or if somebody's driving you know, slow, well, what a moron. It's like, <laughs> but to, to your point, and, I, and I've tried to do more of this in my own personal life, when somebody speeds by me, I don't know that, you know, they could be a jerk. But really, they, they could be rushing to the hospital. Their parents might be sick. Their kid might be right. sick. Or, or, or they're late for a very important meeting. But we make these assumptions. That, oh, look at that crazy guy. Look at, look at the bad decisions that they're making. <laughs> but you don't know what's going on in their head and their life at that time. Exactly, exactly. And that's what we need to be really worried about and afraid of. And that's why we need to go out of our way to be more charitable to others, because our intuitions, as you so rightly point out, Peter, are to be not charitable to others, to assume hostile intent. And that goes back to the Savannah environment, as I talk about in my book, Never Go With Your Gut, How Pioneering Leaders Make the Best Decisions and Avoid Business Disasters, which is available for Amazon for pre-order now in print and ebook and audiobook formats. So in the Savannah environment, in the ancestral Savannah environment, which is what our intuitions and gut reactions are adapted for, so which is 80 to 90% of what we think and feel are driven by these gut intuitions, it was very good to assume hostile intent. If there was somebody else who was coming from another tribe or even from your own tribe who was kind of looking at you sideways, it was very good to assume hostile intent because it was so easy to die in the Savannah environment. We didn't have modern medicine. You know, people fought, people killed each other. You know, here we write each other nasty emails or we <laughs> leave bad product reviews, right? Now, in that time, the conflicts were resolved by you beating each other into a bloody pulp. So that's the way the conflicts were resolved back then. And you wanted to be extra, extra, extra careful to not be beaten into a bloody pulp. But even if you were cut in when you were beating the other person into a bloody pulp and you got a blood infection, you can heal it so you died too. That, that's bad. So the only people who successfully survived and passed their genes forward were people who were very, very vigilant and strongly assumed hostile intent of other people. And attribute. So this is the fundamental attribution error there, where we attribute to other people, especially people who aren't part of our tribe, who don't look like this, like us, who don't talk like us, who don't have our cultural background. We attribute to them negative, hostile intent, and that's what we have to fight it with every day in order to be successful in business and in life. Gleb, if you could find the secret to accomplish that, because there's so much. Of that in today's society here, even even globally, I, I, I think you would you would be a very 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 wealthy man because that, <laughs> that, I mean you you sit there and so I I'm I'm, I'm Greek American and, and the Greeks and Turks have fought for years mm, oh, for, yeah. and, and still to this day 
And the old joke is, you know what a Greek has for Thanksgiving? Lamb, because there's no way he's going to put a Turk on his table. Oh, wow. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) But but it's that same thing because of that, it, that that yeah. they're not in my tribe, and, and because of evil, you know, some things have happened in the past. We still equate them to today, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, to some degree. At some point, it it becomes it becomes sad. It yeah. goes back. It goes back to the point of you know showing gratitude. We're all people. Mm-hmm. We we just we, and thank God we all don't look alike. Thank God we all don't <laughs> talk alike. Thank God that we are all are different. But there's some yeah. people that just can't accept. That difference, and it's it's because you know to, into your chapter four, what color are your glasses? I think some people are wearing you know shades. I don't think they're really, <laughs> they're just black. They just they can't see past. But so when you talk about what color are your glasses, are you talking about those who see the world in rose color glasses? Indeed, indeed, that's exactly right. And to uh, answer your previous point, Peter, I think it's very important for us to realize that we have these intuitions, which do cause other people who don't look like us, and especially those with whom we've had a history of host- with whom our tribe has a history of hostile relations, like Turks and Greeks and so on. There are many, many examples like that. So that's something that we need to be really afraid of and worried about and go against our intuitions and be charitable toward others. More charitable than it feels like we should because it will never feel comfortable to do that because we're going against our gut intuitions. So just on that point about how okay. we need to go against our gut. Now, the rose-colored glasses, yes, there's a cognitive bias, one of those dangerous judgment errors that we tend to make called confirmation bias. We tend to look for information that confirms our beliefs and we tend to ignore information that doesn't confirm our beliefs. So let's say we are looking for information that says that we want to make a merger, we want to acquire another company. We look for, we Google why acquisitions and mergers are good. Now, what kind of information would that uh, search provide you? It would provide you with, you know, great acquisitions and mergers are great. Hire a company to do your merger and acquisition, right? Right. (laughs) That's the kind of information that would provide. Now, it won't provide you the actual information that would be how, whether mergers and acquisitions create value or not create value. And actually, research shows that about 80% of mergers and acquisitions fail to create value. They actually destroy value. So that's it's, it's often a bad idea to try to acquire another company or merge with another company. But people who want to do the merger, to do the acquisition, they don't think about that. They don't look for that information. They look for information that only confirms their beliefs. The same thing on a smaller level. Let's say you're looking to hire an employee and you like this guy who you had an interview with and he, he was great. You know, you really joked and the you really clicked. You're not going to look for negative information about this person. And you're going to be very likely to hire this person. And that will turn out quite often that the person is good at clicking with you, but not good at doing the job. And you didn't find that out because you actually didn't look at the information that would disconfirm your initial idea that this person would be good. So the same thing with merchants and acquisitions, with hires and any other business decisions or personal life decisions you'll tend to make a lot of bad decisions if you look for information that confirms your beliefs and ignore information that doesn't. So bad decisions with these mergers and acquisitions. Uh, I'll use this example. Uh, United Airlines and Continental, their mm-hmm. merger, uh, you, you, you're bringing two cultures in that were very different from each other. And usually when you do that, there's always some turmoil uh, mm-hmm. in these big... So 
we think when we're making this decision to have this merger, we're thinking more in the long term that it'll be great, but we forget to look at the short term aspect of it. Or is it the fact that we know that there's going to be a culture clash? We'll work our way through it. And in hopes of when we come out of it, we're going to be a better company. And I'm not quite sure if that, if that last one really works that way because you've now damaged your reputation by the way you treated your passengers during this turbulent time. Mm-hmm. And passengers have a lot of choices to make. So how does it, how does it equate to something like this? So what usually happens with mergers and acquisitions, where they go wrong, is that business leaders look at the products, at the strategy, and they don't look at the people. They don't look at how people will combine together. Like you said, culture clash is the number one biggest reasons why mergers and acquisitions don't work is culture clash. Number two biggest reasons is systems and processes. (laughs) I'm sorry. this is absolutely true. Do you want you want to comment on that? I can go go into that. But yeah, go ahead. No, yeah. no please, con- please comment. I, I'm sorry, I laughed. I, I just I, I'm I'm thinking of a company who had a lot of acquisitions, and the morale within the organization is completely destroyed because of systems and yep. application. Was, but when you said that, I wasn't expected. That's why yep. I had a laugh. The, the, the joke, the laugh means that you understand and you agree, right? So yeah. the systems and processes. I mean, you gave an example of culture clash. Now, what tends to happen with culture clash is that because leaders don't think through cultures and how they will combine, they just kind of go together randomly. They don't have a single organized approach to what is the, going to be the culture of the new company. And the two cultures just end up clashing together and not working together because each group wants to retain its own culture, what it's comfortable with. It got used to it. That's what their gut is about. They are comfortable with That's one of the problems with our gut reactions. We want to, and that goes back to the tribal environment. We tend to not want to change because in the ancestral environment, change was bad. Change meant really bad things. It, it was really going to be dangerous because we were living on the edge of survival. It, there was no way uh, to stockpile resources for the future. And any change was likely to be a bad one. And so we were really not wanting to do any changes. And so in the current environment, when you're used to a certain way of doing things, which is a, what is a culture, it's a certain way of doing things, you don't want to change that. And so if you don't have a plan for how to combine the two cultures, you're really going to kind of end up with a screwed up system, as you mentioned, with United. Now, that's one, that's one aspect of things. The other aspect of things is systems and processes. And here's the fascinating things. One re- extensive, extensive research in behavioral science and cognitive, uh, behavioral economics and cognitive neuroscience, which is my area of background, that's the research that informs my work, shows that internal systems and processes are much more important than business leaders who actually lead these companies imagine. Internal systems and processes are a great source of competitive advantage and difference between the way that different companies do things. And they are the reasons that some companies succeed and others fail, not because of the people at the top, because we tend to give way too much credit to individuals, not nearly enough to systems and processes. So if if you don't think through how the two systems and processes of your different companies will combine in a single system, in a single process, you'll end up again with two very different ways of doing things that people will bump into each other, they'll clash, and they will not be able to figure things out. Now, the research shows that 
what you want to do with the systems and processes is to choose one. You don't, it's, it's worse when you try to combine elements of both. You just want to choose one from one company or from the other and say, we're doing it this way from now on. and We're doing it this way from now on. Because the systems and processes, they're integrated together. And you don't, you often don't see the ways that they integrate together, which is why you end up with bad consequences when you try to combine two different ones into um, a mishmash of two different, uh, a combined mishmash. So that's a bad idea. You want to choose one and you want to say, we're going to go with that one and we're going to stick with it. Whereas what most people tend to do when they merge companies is to try to do a mishmash of both systems and processes and it just ends up being screwed up. Exactly. So for those of you who are listening and are in an accounting firm, as as Club was speaking, it makes me think of current succession planning in our profession is not growing the firm within, it's buying other practices. So think about this the next time that you're considering buying a practice. Listen to, the, listen to his advice because it's spot on about bringing two cultures that are already different and trying to create a whole new culture. Uh, as well as the systems and processes. Uh, the, the, and, and if you're a CFO in an organization and you're going through a lot of mergers and acquisitions, make sure you use one system, not your system, and let them have their systems because there's a few organizations that I know of that mm-hmm. when that is done, the morale in a company, and especially in the accounting department, is just horrible. It's not even bad. It's just horrible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can totally understand why that would be. So as we begin to wrap up, because I don't want to give away too much of the book. I I want people to make sure they go out and pick it up. As we wrap up, what would be the one big piece of advice that you would give somebody in this audience as relate to how to avoid making bad decisions and creating a disaster? Well, it's the five words that make up the book title. Never go with your gut. Just simple. That's that's that's. It's as simple as that. Never go with your gut. Why is that? Now it's a strong statement. Never go with your gut. The thing is, our gut tends to make really bad choices in our modern business environment. So it's important to see what your gut is telling you, but then always check that with your head. Never simply go with your gut. Never go with your gut intuitions. Check with your head when that happens. And my book describes specific structured decision-making processes that you can use to check with your head. uh, Checking with your head, you know, that's a general piece of advice. It's like a doctor telling you to lose weight, right? Not really going to be helpful if they don't tell you how and here's what you do to go through it. So the book that has extensive specific structured steps that you can go through. And that has everyday activities. So things that take less than five minutes, five questions that you ask yourself on any decision that helps you make a better decision. Then a more complex eight-step model that you make on moderately important decisions. Let's say, which employee do you want to hire? And then a more complex structured approach to major critical decisions that are kind of bet the firm, like a merger and acquisition. You want to spend a lot of time deciding on that, like Peter said. Mm -hmm. So that has a thorough approach and model. But the most general piece of advice is never go with your gut, always check with your head. I like how you say check with your head. It's, 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 you know, your gut might be telling you something and you can't ignore your gut on a yeah. lot of this, but you have to make sure that the facts marry up with what your emotions are telling you to make, sure, to, to make sure they're in line versus I'm going to go with my gut that emotion, and I'm not going to look at the facts and, and, and check with my head. And 
a lot of that had to do with, with, with Enron. It was great story, great emotion. And recently with Theranos, great story. Yeah. You know, I really buy into it. I love it. And, and my, my, my emotions hijacked my logic because I didn't check the numbers. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't validate the data. The two of them have to work together to make better decisions. And, and Gleb, I, I appreciate you taking time. I, I'm looking forward to when the book comes out in November. Uh, and this is a must read for every business leader out there uh, so we can understand how to our, our head and our emotions and make sure they're in proper balance when we make these decisions and make sure that we don't lead into some type of disaster. Absolutely, Peter. Yes, absolutely. I think that's very wise. And thank you for suggesting that folks read my book. And those who want to learn more about me can check out Disaster Avoidance Experts, which is available, of course, on disasteravoidanceexperts.com. And my email is there. It's Gleb, G-L-E-B, my first name, at disasteravoidanceexperts.com. If you want to learn more about me, learn more about the book, talk about any of these topics that I brought up in the interview or others. Thanks, Gleb, and uh, enjoy this hopefully beautiful weekend we have here in Columbus, Ohio. (laughs) I hope it stays beautiful. Thanks, Peter. Now that you've listened to this episode, what will you do to make better decisions and avoid disasters? Will you try to keep your emotions in check and validate them with reliable data? Whatever you decide to do, make it a daily habit. Baby steps. It's all about baby steps. Thank you for listening. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please subscribe and share this episode with a friend. Also, please visit www.c-sweetradio.com to listen to many of the excellent business podcasts they have in the network. Have a great week. Like what you just heard, visit c-suiteradio.com. C-Suite Radio, turning the volume up on business. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.